Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Black Op Radio. This is your host, Leno Sanic, and we are talking to Jim D. Eugenio today from Los Angeles. Hello, Jim. Good evening, Len. How are we doing, partner? Good. As you know, I just got back from Hawaii. I spent some time there with John Armstrong. So Black Op Radio will be having some audio and videos coming up in the near future with uh, him. He's always a wealth of information. And, you know, agree with him or disagree with him, he does some really interesting digging. He finds stuff that I didn't know about. Yeah, I know. I'm one of the maybe uh, 10 people who read his whole book, okay, which is really hard to get now, okay? But... uh, I actually read the whole book. Not very many people have done that. And uh, I did it over two weeks at Mimi's restaurant when I used to live in the South Bay. All right. And I went there for every afternoon uh, for about 10 days, spent about four hours a day, and I read it straight through. Well, I pick it up in pieces. So, but you, that's the only way to really do it is to read it straight through. Yeah. And so that's how, you know, I became one of the very, very few people in the United States who have done that. You know, a lot of people criticize John and then they admit they didn't read the book. I don't know how you can do that. Well, you know, there, uh, there's there's one thing just at arm's length. If you just if you say there's something fishy with the records of Lee Oswald. OK. And then you say. There are people that are in person. He can't be at two places at one time. You can mm-hmm. probably fathom Oswald 1 or Oswald 2 or lookalike or imposter. And if you go like that, but with John, he calls one Harvey and one Lee. Yes. And, and that's where people start to uh, fall apart. So they might say, I don't even want to read the book. But the failing is, is that John's really meticulous for digging out you know, the actual records and reading them. And that's how he came to the, how can this guy be in New Orleans and Mexico City? Well, you know, you know, you know how he did that, don't you? Yeah, I do. But go ahead. OK. All right. See, John made a lot of money in real estate and he used to live in, uh, I think, Tulsa because he was in the oil business also. And he had like a 10,000 square foot house and he had what people call a great room, you know, which is a huge hallway okay uh in that house and he set up a series of tables stacked them next to each other all the way down and then he got all the documents from the national archives and set them up okay consecutively and this went on for a very long time you know and uh john then came to that conclusion that there had to have been a second oswald and not just not just in the sense that Richard Popkin, you know, thought there was a second Oswald. Because if you remember, Richard Popkin in his book, which was called The Second Oswald, thought that the plotters had set up an impersonator for Oswald at certain places, you know, like the uh, the Lincoln Mercury store, like the... Uh, shooting range. Right, at the, at, the, yeah. at the shooting I know, and what you're that, saying is that if you don't take it from the plotters, if you take it from somebody in the intelligence community, that they had groomed two people that from right. high school records and strip, I mean, this is the kind of records that either were doctored 
by fantastic planners or mm -hmm. there was two different schools and and you know anyway you know i'm very comfortable when i talk to john he says look at just prove me where i'm wrong and he goes please i don't want to be wrong so if you know anything len tell me just you know and i said no I, I i'm just going along i'm listening with with interest your story and your take on it and mm -hmm. that he doesn't he doesn't ever say listen you have to take my point of view or anything and it's so refreshing See, but what I, what I always say to people, because so few people have read his book, and so I always say, look, even if you don't agree with that main thesis, there's so much in his book that is so much worth reading. You know, like, for example, uh, on the tippet shooting, he did a very nice job, I thought, on the tippet shooting. He's revised that now, okay? And there's uh -huh. going to be more about that coming out, too. Yeah. Okay. And or his chapter on Mexico City. His chapter on Mexico City is 100 pages long. And I, in my opinion, it's one of the best things out there on that subject. So I haven't seen John in a while. He hasn't been back in the States. Or he, doesn't he have a, a second home in, in Las Vegas? Yeah. Yeah, he does. Yeah. Yeah. He has he, one on the big island and one in Las Vegas, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's get um, to the uh, nitty. First of all, what do you think? Is there going to be another assassination? Oh, it's such a dark topic. I don't even, you know what I mean? I just don't Robert even want Kennedy to... Jr. declared for the presidency. Okay. I mean, really? I mean, this is scary. I, I hope it doesn't happen again. But if he picks up steam and he starts to be a real challenger, look out. Okay. Well, you know, I I don't want to get too much into it, but I mean, I mean, what do you really really make of of Joe Biden? I mean, I have a prejudice about the way he went after Snowden, you know, while he was vice president, and I well, he's still the, doing it. No, I know that, but I'm just saying that just as a person, though, I go, he's very elderly, he's declining. I mean, he's not. Is he the best that America has to offer? And then saying that, the other side of the coin is Trump. Now, you know, you might say, we hate Hillary Clinton, so we'll vote for even a game show host. But, uh, I mean, they both seem to be so so wanting and, you know. So anyway, so then you go Robert well, Kennedy. Well, in, in my opinion, in my opinion, I, I believe Biden and Hillary Clinton and the whole Democratic Party, really, they become the liberal wing of the neocons. You know, neocons just about took over Washington. You know, the, the, those both parties voted so overwhelmingly for this money and hundred billion to Ukraine right. to start a proxy war. Now, and I'm sure you, you saw those documents that got leaked, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. The, those are the Pentagon Papers of the Ukraine war. Yeah. Okay. All those people, if these documents are real, all these people have been lying. Oh, they're okay. real. And what further, I think people think that they have been leaked by people saying, listen, we got it. Well, how can the 21 year old guy that would, I don't Isn't know. Isn't that really weird? Yeah. So they leaked us out to, to war in America. Look at this is such a, a quagmire. There's no way that Ukraine's going to beat Russia. We're not going to put all our weapons into Ukraine just to fight Russia. By the way, uh, we were really supposed to cripple Russia and go on to China. Now, China <laughs> with Russia and Indian, uh, Brazil. Bricks. I mean, they're just saying, you know, we're not taking your American dollar anymore. And we've had mm -hmm. it with you throwing sanctions on everybody. Who do you think you are? Oh, we're going to run fine without you. And see, this was really if you take a look at it. I said this many, many months ago, a long time ago. I said if Biden was a real statesman, he would force Zelensky to the negotiating table and just say, we're not going to support you anymore. We want you to negotiate your way out of this, okay, while you still have some negotiating room left, okay? But he didn't do that. He, he let this whole thing just drag on. And the long, and I knew, I knew this. I just knew it. The longer it dragged on, the more it would play into the Russians' hands, okay? I just knew it because, you know, they just have a bigger, stronger, more organized army. And, and there was no way that th that Ukraine was going to go ahead and defeat the Russian army. And now you've read the documents, right? 
Yeah, I've looked him over and I listened to uh, Scott Ritter and uh, McGregor. Those know, guys, <laughs> those guys, they're the only ones telling the truth. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And it's an uncomfortable truth because some people, you know, they have the Ukrainian flag logo on their Facebook thing or whatever, you know, they go, I stand with Ukraine, you know? And then I say, well, which? Eastern Ukraine or Western Ukraine? And it's a, mm-hmm. it's a civil yeah. war that started it. And it's very complicated. And watch Oliver Stone's film from 2014, 2015. Ukraine mm-hmm. on fire and revealing mm-hmm. Ukraine. And, yeah. you know, it's not really a cut and dried thing. And I said to, you know, one guy who was kind of bugging me, well, are you, you know, are you in favor in Putin? Uh, or, you know, and I said, listen, I'm just trying to understand without condoning. So, but if I tell you I understand some of the facts, they, they don't make sense for your kind of story. Whatever, whatever Biden hoped. I mean, I, I'm at this point in time, they're just, Telling Biden, you know, where to show up and have a photo shoot. I don't think he's in. <laughs> well, you, you really think it's that bad, Lynn? You <laughs> have you have you heard him speak lately? No, I haven't. Oh, uh, well, I know that uh, he did some speech a couple of months ago, and I know like Lisa Pease and a few other people were very enthusiastic about it. Yeah, there's the guy that I wanted, but I just, yeah, I I, I just think I can't imagine he would run again. You know? He's 80 years old, isn't he? Yeah, but he the thing is, he really looks like he's daughtering, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and I, and I hate for that to be the, you know, the case. You'd say, "Listen, you should retire for you and your mm-hmm. family." And then heaven help us and once they really start getting into the 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 Hunter Biden and the laptop and all that kind of stuff that's going on. Mm-hmm. And the thing about Ukraine is when I first heard that Hunter Biden was getting about 50000 a month to be on the board of Burisma Oil, a Ukrainian oil, I meant, oh, of course the whole thing's corrupt. Mm-hmm. Now, how far you want to investigate, I only have so much time, so I'm, I'm dedicating to, to JFK research, and I'm not going full bore into the Ukraine stuff. But when you, if you listen to um, McGregor or Scott Ritter or even uh, Judge, Judge Napolitano, anyway, I listen to a few people. But one of the people I listen to is you, so that's why you're on tonight. <laughs> okay. So let's All talk right. about well, I'm you. very, very proud of, you know, I've always looked at myself as the old adage about what good journalism is, that it, it afflicts the comfortable and comforts the afflicted. And so if you take a look at Kennedy's and King right now, I don't think that part two of the Seymour Hersh article is up yet, but it will be up very soon, very soon. And in fact, it'll probably be up tomorrow. The other thing is my review of Edward Epstein's book, Assume Nothing, okay? These two guys, I believe, are two of the biggest hacks ever on the JFK case. And I did a part one on Seymour Hersh a few weeks ago. Seymour Hersh falls on his face again and again and again, all right? And that opened a lot of people's eyes to how bad Hersh is on JFK and a few other things, all right? But then I did, he did another column, you know, and my loyal readers always send me this stuff, you know, because they always want me to reply. On March of 29th, he did another column about the Kennedy thing, which which is, again, ridiculous. It's a ridiculous column. But see... Like I've said, Substack is too easy. It's just too simple. You have no editor, okay? You have nobody checking your work. You know, you just spit out something every three or four days, you know, and people, you know, because they're so hard up for information, they buy it. And so this is what these people do ones, Caitlin Johnston, all these other people. All right, see, I, I, see, I can't do that. And in my article about Hirsch, in part two of my article, I explain why I can't do it. See, because it's very easy to just throw some slop up against the wall, hoping some of it will stick. It's much more difficult to build a three-layer chocolate cake. That's much more difficult. And so what I do, like for this reply to Hirsch, I had to order files from the Washington Post from a different, you can believe it, UCLA didn't even have it. They didn't even have the microfilm from the Washington Post from 1962. So they had to send away for it. And I had to get a, I had to drive down to UCLA twice because I thought for sure they would have it. You know, I was shocked when they didn't. And I said, how long is it going to take you to get it? 
They go probably about four or five days. And so I had to drive down there twice. Okay. To, and then I had to go sit on my butt for about four hours going through the Washington Post. Okay. Trying to find this information that Hirsch says was about Bobby Kennedy being in Italy in January of 1962. All right. So I emailed Hirsch about this. I said, Mr. Hirsch, what is your source for Bobby Kennedy being in Italy in January of 1962? Because I can't find it. He asked me who I was and then said, it's pretty obvious. That's why I'm asking. He gives no source in the article. Okay. So I said, what's so obvious about it? So this is what I did. I went through the Washington Post microfilm. I went through the New York Times index. That's digitalized now. And they have an index. I went through my Bobby Kennedy books. All right. I went to newspaper.com. Finally, I emailed the JFK library and asked them to look in Bobby Kennedy's appointment book to see if they could find him being in Italy in January of 1962. These all came back negative. All right. So this is what I'm writing about in the second part of this article. And so you, we, we can, you can read about that probably tomorrow. Now, on Edward Epstein, this is how this happened. Edward Epstein had somebody write a, uh, an article about him in airmail, Graydon Carter's new uh, online magazine. And one of my readers sent it to me. I, and he said, this doesn't look good, Jim. So I read the article. The article's a puff piece about Epstein. So I went ahead and I bought the Kindle feature of the book to counteract this puff piece. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm glad I did because this book really tells you who Edward Epstein really was. Okay. Edward Epstein is right in the nexus of that Washington, New York power circle. Okay. And he's an inveterate name dropper. And so he talks about all the people who have influenced and helped his career, like Clay Felker who was a big time editor of magazines in the 70s and the 80s, like Patrick Monaghan, Daniel Patrick Monaghan, who worked for Nixon and then ran for the Senate for Nixon. He's the one who recommended a policy of benign neglect for African-Americans. Okay. James Goldsmith, the corporate raider, the billionaire corporate raider who built his own estate down in Mexico in which Epstein spent, get this, 10 Christmases at Jimmy Goldsmith's estate down there. His dinner with Richard Helms. Now, can you imagine being on the short list for a dinner with Dick Helms and his wife, Joseph Alsop, and Arnold DeBorchgrave, one of the guys, the right-wing columnist who helped found Newsmax. Epstein was at that dinner, okay? I can go on and on about all these people that have backed his, and he knows, and had some influence on his career. But this is who Edward Epstein is. And in my review of his book, I go through, I go through at least some of this stuff. He went to Cornell. He dropped out of Cornell. It's not clear whether he flunked out or he dropped out. He then went to Europe. And if you can believe this, he tried to make a movie out of the Iliad. Now, if you think about that for a while, a 21-year-old kid who had no credits to his name at all was going to go to Europe and produce a movie based on Homer's Iliad, one of the great epic poems in the history of literature. Except he did not have a completed script, he didn't have a director signed for the film, and he didn't sign an actor to play Achilles. What kind of a moron? I mean, you don't even have to have any experience in the movie business. Well, that is no experience right there. <laughs> but I'm saying even anybody with common sense would say, how the hell are you going to make a movie <clears throat> of the Iliad without a director, without a finished script, and without an actor to play Achilles? Okay? I mean, so this ended up being a disaster. I mean, anybody could have told him that in advance. All right? So he goes back to Cornell. And he's with Professor Andrew Hacker. Andrew Hacker was one of the big heavyweights in academia at that time. 
And on the day that Kennedy was assassinated, he and Hacker were talking. And Hacker said something like, this will be a test for American democracy, which, of course, it was in which American democracy flunked. Okay, now I'm saying that he would never say that. All right. So Epstein got back to Hacker and said, I've got an idea for my master's thesis. I should do one on the Kennedy assassination. And so Hacker wrote him letters of introduction to all the commissioners. And incredibly, most of them agreed to talk to him. There were two exceptions I I found. Number one, Earl Warren would not talk to him. So he got J. Lee Rankin to talk to him. Secondly, it's very mysterious that he doesn't mention whether or not Russell got back to him and agreed to talk to him, because I don't remember Russell, okay, him going down to Georgia interviewing Russell. Because that, of course, would have been what we have with what we know today, that would have been the whole key to what really went on with the Warren Commission. But there are some revealing things, and this is the only reason to read the book. There are some revealing things that he talks about in this section of the book. All right, like for example, to show you, this is this is way one of the most important interludes with the Warren Commission. And I'm sure everybody listening to this show will understand this, is how McCloy, Ford, and the FBI vetoed Warren's first choice for chief counsel, which was Warren only. Gerald Ford, of course, we know today, was a spy for the FBI on the commission. And he got back to the FBI that Warren was probably going to appoint only as chief counsel. Hoover was not going to put up with this because only was a very independent guy who didn't like the FBI. Now, the way that Epstein talked about this in his book, Inquest, which his master's thesis became, this is what he says. The next order of business was a selection of general counsel. The first person suggested for this position was rejected because he was too controversial. Warren then proposed J. Lee Rankin, a former Solicitor General of the United States, and the commission immediately and unanimously agreed upon him. That's from Epstein's book, Inquest. And in my opinion, it's it's wrong, all right? That's not what happened, all right? Gerald McKnight deals with this whole thing in about three pages in his book, Breach of Trust. Uh, Warren did not propose Rankin, okay? Two days before this meeting, Hoover learned through Nicholas Katzenbach that only was in the cards, and the FBI now went to work through Gerald Ford to get rid of Olney. It was Ford and John McCloy who objected to Olney, and it was McCloy, not Warren, who nominated J. Lee Rankin, all right? And with the help of Alan Dulles, Rankin was approved, okay? Russell didn't like this because, you know, he had been in the Senate so long that he understood that the chairman of the committee gets to pick who his chief counsel is. All right, so Russell didn't really like this very much. And what this did, and it's so important for to understand and to see how, how short-changed the reader is by Epstein, this was a very important event for a lot of different reasons. Okay, first of all, it showed who was the real power on the commission, and it wasn't Warren. All right, it was those three guys. It was Ford, McCloy, and Dulles. Those were the three powers on the Warren Commission, all right? And then the rest of the, what I call the Southern Wing, Russell, Cooper, and Boggs were sort of just like tossed aside, like they didn't matter, all right? Okay. And the guys inside the committee running the show were really Howard Willens and Rankin, okay? They were serving at the behest of those three men, all right? 
and I can't believe Epstein once Epstein writes that Ford had been absent from most hearings. That's completely wrong, according to Walt Brown's book, The Warner Mission. Whichever way you want to evaluate it, Ford was one of the top three in his attendance. And I think he was second in a number of questions asked. He had to be because he was being a spy for the FBI. All right. He and by he's very revealingly about Gerald Ford. Epstein says that, excuse me, as I say this, don't laugh too hard. Ford had a reputation for candor, which is ridiculous. All right. Because if he had a reputation for candor, he would have told Epstein, uh, I changed the uh, final draft of the Warren Commission report. I had to move up that bullet because nobody would have believed it was a single bullet theory was going to work if I had the bullet in the back. Well, he didn't say anything like that, and nothing like that is in inquest. All right. Okay, so in the face of that, it's goofy for him to say that, but what he does say about Ford is that after talking with Ford, he came to the whole idea of political truth, okay, in which facts may be tempered to fit political realities, all right, and which, of course, is what the Warren Commission did, all right. Um, Another thing that I think he missed, well, I, I don't think he missed, he did miss. This is how he describes the final hearing. On September the 7th, commissioners Russell, Cooper, and Boggs went to Dallas to re-examine Rena Oswald. Under Senator Russell's rigorous questioning, she changed major aspects of her story and altered her previous testimony. More rewriting was thus necessitated. Finally, on September the 24th, the report was submitted to President Johnson. Now, to be fair to Epstein, he does describe a debate at the last executive session hearing. But he does not describe it, okay, as being at that specific date, okay? That debate was over of course, the single bullet theory. But incredibly, Epstein missed the most important aspect of the debate. And this is why I think, see, if he would have questioned Russell, which I don't think he did, he would have discovered it, okay? Namely that the power nexus of the commission that is Ford, that is Dulles, McCloy, and Rankin, that they knew what Russell was coming in with because Rankin had been at that cross-examination of Marina Oswald, which not just Russell was very skeptical, but so was Boggs and so was Cooper. So obviously what happened is that Rankin told those guys what Russell was going to do, okay, because they went over to the Texas School Book Depository afterwards, all right, and Russell walked up to the sixth floor with an unloaded rifle, you know, came back down, and he says with his tongue in cheek, yeah, that was an easy shot, all right, and so they knew what he was going to say, and so they snookered him, you know, and Epstein could have got this from Russell because Russell would have told him there was some girl there. Okay. And I thought she was a secretary. And then Epstein would have just what McKnight, or I think Weisberg did, or McKnight, got the records of the Warren Commission and found out that their sonography contract expired the week before. So there was no stenographer there. All right. And so what happened is they planted a secretary there to fool Russell into thinking that all of his objections were going to be recorded. 
And we know today that didn't happen. There is no transcript of that final meeting that Russell worked so hard on to mount an argument against a single bullet theory. And this is how Rankin managed to try and create the illusion that the Warren Commission was unanimous when it wasn't, okay? Now, Epstein missed that completely from what I can tell, all right? Um, in my opinion, it's, it's an incredibly important event, almost as, imp well, probably maybe more important than the whole thing with Olney, all right? Okay, and I think he could have discovered it if he would have interviewed uh, Russell, all right? Um, he also says, he also says that Alan Dulles retired from the CIA. Hirsch says that also in his book, The Dark Side of Camelot. You know, that is not what happened, okay? Uh, Kennedy fired Dulles just as he fired Bissell and just as he fired Cabell. And he was probably too kind in letting them stay, stick around so they could leave at their convenience. In Dulles's case, he left when the new CIA building was built uh, at Langley, all right? But by saying that he retired, Hirsch and Epstein saved themselves explaining why Kennedy fired him, which of course was over the Bay of Pigs. If you take a look at the index, the inquest, you won't see a reference to the Bay of Pigs, all right? Now, this is the really interesting part of the book, if you can call it that. His interviews with Francis Adams and Arlen Specter. Adams, his name is on the commission, but he only lasted a couple of weeks. And in fact, Rankin, who comes out as a real cover-up artist when his talks with Epstein, he kept Adams' name on the commission, even though he wasn't there, okay, because he didn't want to create the impression that there was dissension amid the commission, but there was. Adams disagreed with the compartmentalized approach that Rankin was going to take with the Warren Commission. All right. So in other words, what, what he meant by that, see, he was a police commissioner and an experienced investigator. So he knew that when you compartmentalize an investigation, that means the people doing, for example, the field investigation of how the crime was committed, those people don't really talk to the people doing the ballistics work. And then those people don't talk to the people doing the medical examination. So therefore, you only have a certain people, a group of people at the top who know what's going on. All right. He didn't want to do it that way. He also objected to warn putting a restriction on when they could go to Dallas, okay? Warren wanted to wait till Jack Ruby, his trial was over, which meant March of 1964. Adams didn't like that, so he basically quit. And so therefore what this meant was that Specter, who was going to be the junior counsel to Adams senior counsel, he's the one who examined the actual uh, facts of the assassination, all right? Now, this is really something. Epstein talks about Malcolm Perry, although not specifically, at the November 22nd press conference and how he said three times that the bullet wound in Kennedy's neck was an entrance wound. And Spectre basically says 
that Warren wanted him to take care of that problem. Which, of course, Spectre says, and I did. It's much more complicated than that, of course. And Malcolm Perry only did what he did because he was pressured. He never believed, okay, anything else, all right, that it was. In, and, and we had Don Miller talk about that in our documentary. And we had the report by Martin Stedman in my article, The Ordeal of Malcolm Perry, that says this pressure on Perry began that night. All right, so Epstein kind of missed the story there. But here's something that I never recalled Spectre saying before, not even in Inquest. And here's how it happens. Epstein asks Arlen Spectre, when the Secret Service did a reconstruction on December the 7th, 1963, why did they not arrive at the magic bullet concept? This is what Spectre says. And this is a verbatim quote. They had no idea at the time that unless one bullet had hit Kennedy and Connolly, there had to be a second assassin. Let me just repeat that again. They had no idea at the time that unless one bullet had hit Kennedy and Connolly, there had to be a second assassin. If you ever wanted a confession that the single bullet theory was a matter of necessity and not evidence, there it is. Okay. But then Spectre tops that. Epstein asked him how he convinced the commission about this concept. And this is how Spectre replied. I showed them the Zapruder film frame by frame and explained that they could either accept a single bullet theory or begin looking for a second assassin. I mean, those two quotes, they verify the very worst things that the critics have always felt about what happened inside the Warren Commission. That it was simply a matter of them not wanting to find a second assassin, that they would go ahead and abide by the impossibilities of the single bullet theory instead. Okay? I mean, it really I, I really don't think these were in inquest. I don't recall them being in inquest. And I wonder why Epstein waited so long. Maybe it's because Spectre is dead now? I don't know. Okay, but these are really incredibly damning quotes and they aren't in the uh, airmail review, but they are in mine. Okay. Now, I figured at about this point in the book that Epstein had been too candid and it couldn't stay like that. And I was right about this, of course. All right. Right after this, Spectre tells Epstein that he never saw the autopsy photos, which is not true. Uh, Epstein didn't do his homework on this. In 2003, at a conference in Pittsburgh, Spectre revealed that Secret Service agent Elmer Moore showed him an autopsy photograph. Now, that very fact blows up this whole crazy hoax that the Warren Commission did not have the autopsy materials and somehow they were under the control of Robert Kennedy. Both of those are false. All right. And again, if you read Gerald McKnight's book, Breach of Trust, you'll find out that they're false. All right. Elmer Moore was a Secret Service agent who was detailed to the Warren Commission almost immediately after the assassination. We spent a lot of time with him in Oliver's film through the auspices of James Gochenauer. All right. Elmore Moore was one of the most malignant forces that there was concerning the Kennedy assassination. I don't think there's any question about that today. So if he had the autopsy materials, then that means the Secret Service had the autopsy materials. 
And in fact, that is the case. The Secret Service had control of the autopsy photos and x-rays, all right, all the way through 1960, about the fall of 1965. That's when they were turned over to the Kennedy family. And in fact, the Warren Commission had a safe in their offices in which these pictures and x-rays were stored. And in fact, in one of the executive session hearings, McCloy asked Rankin about this. And Rankin literally said, yes, they're here. Uh, we have them in a safe at this uh, office down the hall. Words of that effect. He even described one of the photos. I don't know if he had it in his hand or if he was just doing it by memory. But he talks about uh, we might have a problem because this uh, picture of this wound in the back is too low. Okay, so this is just baloney that these were up to Robert Kennedy. That's not true. All right. Okay. now after inquest is done, Epstein's other career boost was through Clay Felker. If you know anything about the magazine business in the 60s or 70s, Clay Felker was a very big figure. He was a prolific magazine editor who did, he founded New York Magazine, which was really the first of the big city magazines. He was the publisher of the Village Voice. He bought Esquire and then sold it. And he edited Manhattan Inc., where Epstein had a column out. All right. Once the manuscript was ready to be published, Felker got it to Viking Press, and he held a big signing party, a big book signing party in New York. Now, take a look at some of the people who were at this uh, party. Tom Wolfe, Gloria Steinem, Saul Bellow, Norman Mailer, Peter Moss, David Frost, and Paul Newman, among others. I never had a signing party like that, okay? See, Epstein is an incontinent name dropper, okay? And we see that this was really the beginning of his entree into the New York-Washington power nexus. And from here, he's going to migrate to Harvard with his friend, Daniel Patrick Monaghan. And that would get him, he doesn't detail it, but that got him a position at the New Yorker through the editor, William Sean. Now, that's what's happening to Epstein after inquest. But I want to talk about something that happened before inquest. And by the way, I did not tell the, are you familiar with that red stocking story? about Clay Felker and Gloria Steinem, Len? No, no, I'm not. So for listeners, yeah, tell, tell us. Red Stocking was a feminist group that was around at the beginning and didn't like the way that Gloria Steinem more or less hijacked that movement, okay? They put out a bulletin about Steinem and Felker that Steinem had worked for the CIA in a student group that went over to Europe in the early 60s. And Felker is a guy who had sponsored that group. I didn't believe this when I first saw it, okay? It turned out to be true, okay? I, I, it turned out to be true. I left well, that. What are the ramifications of that then? Clay Felker was the best of friends with the CIA then, okay? And Gloria Steinem, you have to ask the question, you know, was this part of her assignment with the Central Intelligence Agency to hijack the feminist movement? You know, those are just questions that naturally arise from that, you know. And like I said, look, I'm not a natural born conspiracy theorist. You have to prove something to me before I'm going to believe it. I didn't believe that story. But then I found in a biography of Steinem that it was true. OK, it was true. Of course, nobody likes talking about it today, you know, because Stein, uh, Felker passed away, you know, but Steinem's a pretty big, heavy hitter. OK. So anyway, this is very interesting, but I'm going to go to something that I think is even more interesting. Before the book was published, Epstein attended a gathering in New York City. This was a very different crowd. It was a meeting of the JFK critical community at the time. Sylvia Marr, Vince Salandria, Thomas Stamm, and several others. At that gathering, Epstein revealed another story. And again, I couldn't find this in Inquest. I'm not saying it's not there, but I'm just saying I couldn't find it, all right? He said 
that in the late summer, early fall of 1964, the commission was in the danger of collapsing. Many of the accounts were about to give up since there was no case or real evidence against Oswald. These letters went to Howard Willans, who had the job of sewing it back together, which he did. That's in John Callum's excellent book, Praise from a Future Generation. Now, I could have added here that what Willans did at this time, he brought in two new guys. One of them had not even graduated law school yet, and the other one had just graduated. And he gave these two guys the jobs of doing the biography of Oswald and Ruby. In other words, this is how he was going to stitch back together the collapse of the Warren Commission with these two new guys who would go ahead and, you know, and write these, let's say, not really candid biographies, you know, of Jack Ruby and and Lee Harvey Oswald. All right. Sylvia Marr called him up after this meeting and asked him if he thought Lee Oswald was guilty. Epstein said he might be, he might not be, but he thought the murder was carried out by a group of conspirators. That's in John Kellen's book also. After his book came out, Epstein appeared on some TV shows and Sylvia Marr watched one of these and was shocked at how badly Epstein did, did in the debate. And she said, Wesley Lieberly literally fried him. She was so disappointed that she called up Epstein and said not to do any more debates because he was hurting both his book and the critical community. I think it's safe to say that I, and again, we can't prove this except circumstantially, all right? Something happened to Epstein between when he finished his book and after Clay Felker's party. And I base that on two things in addition to the evidence above. First, there was a debate in Boston in the late fall of 66, which I think was right after Inquest was published. Vince Solandier was there to present the critical side. Jacob Cohen was there, among others, to defend the Warren Commission. Jacob Cohen, I think, was a uh, professor from Columbia. Epstein was supposed to be there. In fact, he was invited, but he declined the invitation. Once the debate began, Vince was very surprised to see that Epstein was there, but not part of the debate. And the following dialogue is constructed from the notes Vince made that evening. Epstein, what are you doing in Boston? Vince, I'm telling the truth to the American people. What are you doing, Ed? Epstein, I've changed, Vince. Vince, you made a deal. That's all right. That's okay, Ed. But if you get up before a television camera again and pretend you're a critic, I'll tell all about you. Epstein smiled and said, you know what happened? That's from John Kellen's book also. The other thing that denotes that something happened to Epstein is that in January of 1967, Richard Warren Lewis and Larry Schiller wrote a book called The Scavengers and Critics of the Warren Report. If you've ever seen this book, and I did read it a long time ago, it's clearly a hit job on all the critics. You name them, they're in there, all right? There was no holds barred in the smear. And declassified files later revealed that Larry Schiller was a prolific informant for the FBI. It's about 45 pages on him. There was an LP record, and I think, you know, everything, people remember that when music come in, can't, used to come out in vinyl discs. Okay, you had the 45s that had like a three-minute song, and then you had the LP, which was an album, 
Well, an album came out accompanying that book, and Epstein is on the album, ridiculing the critics. In other words, he's joined up with with Richard Warren Lewis and Larry Schiller. In the space of a few months from that meeting with Sylvia Marr, he had done a total backflip. Okay, now I'm not going to go into his next book, which was really a collation of his two part article on Jim Garrison for the New Yorker. All right, but there is a link at the end of this column and you can read what I wrote about it before. It was turned into a book called Counterplot. And all I can say about that book is that with all the declassified files we have on Garrison from the ARB, his book is like an obsolete relic from ancient times, like Egypt or Greece, okay? You know, or Rome. You know, it's it's just it's a completely useless book today. His last book on the JFK case was called Legend. And that book was sponsored by the management at Reader's Digest. And they gave him a lot of money. Okay. And James Angleton was an informal consultant on that book. Okay. Now, that's about it for the JFK stuff. The other part of the book, and this was really discouraging. When he got to know Goldsmith, this is how he got to know Richard Nixon. When Nixon was opening up his library out in Yorba Linda, he did not want it to be government sponsored. So he was going around to millionaires and billionaires trying to get donations. And he arrived at Goldsmith's estate in Mexico with B.B. Rebozo, okay, on the one hand, and Robert Ablinamop on the other hand, okay? Ablinamop was the guy who created the aerosol can and made tons of money off that. We know who B.B. Rebozo was. And Bill Simon was a third guy. All right. To put it mildly, Epstein writes rather kindly about Richard Nixon. And it's almost kind of like fawning. You would never know that the guy would have been placed in jail if it wasn't for Gerald Ford pardoning him. He praises Nixon's comeback in 1968 without saying anything about Nixon undermining Johnson's Vietnam peace plan and how that allowed him to win the election. Doesn't say anything about it. Doesn't say anything about the assassination of Robert Kennedy and how that created chaos at the Chicago Democratic Convention. All right. Which is the other thing that allowed him to win, Nixon to win. He also praises Nixon for his effort to open up relations with China, saying no other president had thought of that, which is not really accurate because Kennedy was going to do it. And he told Roger Hilsman about it in 1961. Epstein then says that Nixon's move towards China changed the politics and economics of the world. That is so wild. I mean, because... When you read more about Nixon in the Vietnam War, and if you read Jeff Kimball, I believe he is the foremost scholar on that subject. The real reason Nixon did these things is he wanted Russia and China to help him ease his way out of the Vietnam mess. That was the real reason for it. Okay? If you listen to the tapes between him and Kissinger, all right, which they did not do, all right? And so what happened is that he didn't want to do the things that they wanted to do, which was opening up trade and cultural affairs between the three countries, all right? So what that did, it put that whole relationship more or less on ice, and we know what's happened today. Today, what's happened is that Russia, China, and India are putting together a new world order without the United States. So I don't know what Epstein is talking about here, okay? (coughs) So then we go to Kissinger. This is where 
he's invited to Richard Helms' house with Alsip and Arna de Borchgrave. The guest of honor was Kissinger. All right. And Epstein is even more fawning over Kissinger, who he says has spellbinding insights into past and present events. That's a direct quote. You know, I add in here, I wish I was kidding about the above, but I'm not kidding. These are some of the questions that I would have had that Epstein didn't, okay, for these two men. And this is why I'm never going to get invited to Richard Holmes or somebody like that to any of those dinner parties, all right? For Nixon, this will be one of my questions. Why did you steal the 1968 election in order to make the Vietnam War last five more years? Especially in light of the fact that according to Jeff Kimball, as early as 1968, you knew that war could not be won. I'd love to hear the answer to that question. All right. To both of you, Tricky Dick and Henry, do you think that the secret bombing and invasion of Cambodia was justified for whatever military advantage there was? According to William Shawcross's book, Sideshow, destabilization led to the deaths of about 2 million innocent civilians. Again, for both Tricky Dick and Henry, was it worth the assassination of both General Schneider and President Salvador Allende to install a brutal dictator in Chile like Pinochet? After all, at his death, Pinochet had been arrested twice and had 300 charges outstanding against him. Do you know how many people he killed after he rounded it up in that stadium? For Mr. Kissinger, how does it feel to be the world champion of genocides? I mean, three in the space of about five years. That's no mean feat. East Pakistan, Cambodia, and East Timor. Okay? So those are some, those are some of the questions that I would have asked, and uh, that's why I'll never be invited <laughs> to any of those kinds of parties. All right? But Ed, of course, did not do anything like this in his adulation of Nixon and Kissinger, which is one one reason why the documentary about him, Hall of Mirrors, did not go anywhere. In fact, I would have never even heard of that documentary if I hadn't read this book. I didn't even know there was a documentary about Epstein. All right, I think the felt that he the fact that he felt so cozy with those two men, all right, tells us a lot about whatever success he has had, and that's the only reason for that this book has any value, okay? It shows who Epstein really was, who he feels comfortable around, and the people who have really helped his career, all right, and what he's done for them and what they've done for him. Okay, next week, or when I'm on next, whenever, we'll talk about more about, because my Seymour Hersh Part 2 article will be will be up by then. All right, now, now let me let me get to uh um we always have letters, don't we? Okay. This is from a guy named Marco Emacora. Okay. I happen to be reading a new book about the disgusting exploitation of African workers in the Congo mining cobalt, a key ingredient in 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 one, I don't know what this means, Siddhar Kara. Okay. Because of the exponential increase in sales of these devices, mining of this cobalt has skyrocketed. I think the author of this book, Siddhar Kara, cares about the poor and much of his work financed by himself. He deals with the sorry history of the colonial exploitation of the Congo. He seems to be a great admirer of Lumumba since he ends his book with a quote from Lumumba. I was surprised by the following. The incoming Kennedy administration was worried that Lumumba might return to power and persuaded Belgium to send Lumumba to Katanga. I, well, that's completely false. All right. He says, I read that aghast. Now, I'm no expert on any aspect of the Kennedys, unlike you. I'm just an interested layman. 
but I never heard of such a thing for Kennedy. It seems so out of character. Well, it's because it didn't happen. I thought you might want to be informed and perhaps do something about this. All right. Maybe we can talk about something responding. Well, I did respond to this. And I said that that statement is completely false. And you can quote me on that. Siddhartha Kara's email address is, and he lists it here. Okay, he's at Harvard. Oh my God, is that sick thing? He's at Harvard and he writes a sentence like that. The phone is 617-496. I won't say the rest of it. As he might not want people calling him. All right. The other sentence citing Kennedy is to Shombi's forces fought the UN and Katanga for another two years until U.S. President Kennedy uh, ended the conflict. I thought you might want, well, that's not true either. Tashambi fought the nationalists, okay, for two years, all right? The UN only came in at the very end, I believe, of 1962, and it was at Kennedy's urging, and then that was all over in a couple of weeks, all right? All right. I know, of course, many Kennedy revisionists think that Kennedy was no progressive, and they might be right, but I do not think so. All right. All right, here's a master's thesis he's quoting. The CIA did not even inform Kennedy of its old plans when his administration took office in January 1961. Decide, despite his eagerness to use their skills in other areas, it should be noted the CIA has sometimes been not credible. At first glance, it's difficult to know what to make of this major discrepancy in Congo quality between the two institutions administrations, one willing to use assassination to deal with propaganda leaders in Cuba and South Vietnam. That's not true. And I said, you can quote me on that also. Kennedy had no knowledge of the CIA Castro assassination plots. All right. And Kennedy was very depressed when he learned about the assassination of the new brothers in Vietnam. All right. The situation was dramatically different when the Kennedy administration took office as Lumumba had been emerging largely unscathed after the revolution of Lumumba's death, but more suspicious deaths would have been doubted in support of the African states. This is completely false. And I told Marco, you can use my quotes to both of those guys to tell them both that they're wrong. Okay. All right. Now, I'm sure you heard about this, didn't you? In an interview on Tom Poole's podcast today, Ron Paul cited the Kennedy assassination as a day, a pivotal event in the last century of American history. Here's a transcription of the key passages. Ron Paul, but I do believe there has been a coup and it's been taken over. And if I can, I want you to put the date in my mind. Anybody could probably pick any date in the last hundred years, but I picked November 22nd, 1963. What happened on that day? That was the day Kennedy was murdered by our government, by the CIA. Well, what do you think of that, Len? Yeah, well, it's just a... <laughs> Pretty good, uh, huh? Yeah, I mean, he's just saying kind of what we all know, and, and it's so anticlimactic in one way after 60 years. Well, remember, Len, yeah. remember, Len, he was a congressman yeah. who ran for president, okay? Yeah. And he actually did fairly well, if you remember. Okay. And so I, I said on one of these forums, I said, wow, if I had any money, which this movement does not, okay, I put out a full page ad in the Washington Post, okay, uh, putting that in there. That'd be terrific. You know, here's a former congressman and a guy who ran for president who's saying the CIA killed Kennedy back in 1963. You know? Len, are we making some headway? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, well, we had that quote from uh, Donald Trump saying to his friend, the judge, right, that if you saw what I saw, you'd realize why we can never release these documents. Right, right. Well, that's, you know, if that's true, okay, I mean, if that's true, that's just awesome. All right. Um, okay, so I guess that's it for tonight. All right. 
I don't. Do you have anything else? No, no. Very good. Okay. Just it's a real history listening, uh, listening to you and the, these re- reviews and just showing. I mean, the whole time you're you're talking about Epstein and uh, how he changed. I just think you know you you mentioned it was very quickly, like maybe in a three week or a month period. Yeah, in just a period of a few weeks. Yeah, and I I, I just I was thinking about Gary Mack. Well, here's my question: How do you go from saying that the Warren Commission was on the verge of collapse at one gathering, and then a few weeks later, you're on a LP record with Larry Schiller smearing the critics? How do you do that? You know, it just does not seem to be a normal progression. Oh, by the way, let me say this. Um, at first, Sylvia Marr liked Epstein, okay? Uh, probably because he had some inside connections. You know, she finally, in her conversations with Ray Marcus, you know, uh, I think in 1968, in a letter I saw, said, I now believe you were right about Epstein. Okay, Ray Marcus thought he was a plant. Okay, you know. So, Sylvia Marr came around on him. All right. Thanks so much, Jim. And Okay. Uh, I'll talk to you next week or the week after. All right. Thank you, Len. Good night. All right. Good night.